and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at Minute 114, which begins with Ripley saying, with a little luck, and ends with the credit for cinematographer Derek Van Lent. Yeah, Mitch, this is our last minute of movie. That's right. We will no longer have any actual Alien movie to talk about after today, so... Let's get it all in today, whatever we got left to say. Hey, she's reading off the list of the crew. Did you see any order of like, how did that, why, why does it read that? Was it rank? Was it? No, not at all. It was completely out of the blue to me. I, cause I kept listening to it thinking, okay, was it the order of death? No. Kane's first and Dallas is last, right? Yeah. Well, I couldn't figure it out. All right. So to anybody on the listener's page, yeah. if you can decode the order of the crew that Ripley reads off. We will entertain any yeah. theories as to why that's the order that the names are. It's it's quite a challenge because I'm going to bet that there isn't actually a really good reason. It seems r- entirely random to me. But so maybe go it's for it, people. Rhythm or something audible rhythm. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm it was going to go Sigourney back. Sigourney Weaver remembering the names of the <laughs> crew <laughs> on the day of shooting. The other members of the crew: Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett. Ash and Captain Dallas are dead. I do want to say something, though, about this this Zoom, which is moving in on her and which is finally a totally resolved Zoom, the most resolved Zoom in the movie. She even goes on to say, come on, cat, and mm-hmm. exits the frame. So the Zoom hangs there. There's a second Zoom, too, as she, like Sleeping Beauty, is there in the pod And that is also a resolved Zoom. And there are very few Mm -hmm. of those in the movie. But I just wanted to note that the Zoom as a piece of cinematic language is so effective in this movie. And it's interesting because at the end of the 70s, nothing had been more overused than the Zoom. Mm -hmm. It had been used brilliantly by Robert Altman in the way that his Zooms would sort of drift through and find somebody uh, and it was used crazy brilliantly by Peckinpah with snap zooms and, and stuff that he did, particularly in The Wild Bunch. But it had be also become this go-to poor man's tool for television. So if you watch 70s TV, it's just filled with these lame-ass zooms that generally start at a window and then zoom out to show you the building. Or uh, they're used for these cheap establishing shots, a quick way to go from a wide shot to a close shot. And it wasn't an aesthetic language choice. It was just a, how do we get this information as quickly, cheaply as we can, you know? And so you had lots of ugly zooms. And I just think that they're so beautiful and elegant in this movie. And it does create this incredible tension and this sense of being distant from the material. And now, ironically, here at the end, it's moving us in, in an almost emotional fashion. So it just shows you that the zoom is something that can be used different ways with with proper thought. Obviously, Stanley Kubrick was having a blast with it at this point in his career. The next thing I was going to say was, Mitch, did you forget to mention Kubrick? No, no. I mean, he, yeah, he, he certainly used them to great effect. How would you define Kubrick's use of the Zoom? Because it seems altogether different than some of the other people you're talking well, about. Well, usually from Clockwork Orange on, it started as a way to take us to a tableau. It would start on yeah. a single object and it would slowly zoom out to reveal the final 
composition. But he uses some snap zooms in The Shining. Mm-hmm. So he's not above using the fast zoom for a cheap scare. Um, there are certainly lots of scenes in The Shining where, you know, it starts zooming on one one object and, and widens out to give us the whole tableau. But it's very different than the way that they used it in Starsky and Hutch oh. or, or SWAT or Charlie's Angels or some of those, you know, crappy television shows in the right. 70s. Like so often a zoom is used to punctuate a moment like you might see or sometimes it's a push in technically. But when you talk about 70s television a lot of times when Columbo's murderer you know he gets that moment right before the the, the commercial break where you zoomed in or, or yeah. pushed in what you're talking about with Kubrick is a reverse of that because we're not zooming in to punctuate anything we're taking a subject and then revealing the world the subjects within right increasing the, re- the visual information increasing the visual intro- information the way Ridley Scott's using it in Alien is all about tone and mood. Like, am I wrong in thinking that the only time he resolves zooms is on Ripley? Yeah, I think there, didn't we find one resolved zoom on Ash? I don't think so. On the Ash head? No. Boy, I might be wrong. I thought, I, might be wrong. I, I thought we said there's a resolved zoom here, but I, I'd have to go back and listen. But I, I feel like that, the only resolved zoom we got was when, after the Nostromo blows up. Yeah, we definitely I got one I could be there. wrong about that. Man, I feel bad that I don't remember it. But that's saying something because, you know, she's our protagonist and they've done so much to kind of keep that from us throughout the movie and never really accentuating that too much. It happens so naturally that it's very subtle how Ripley becomes the protagonist. But in the film language and the use of the camera and use of the zooms, they're really kind of telling us like this is the person that we're going to have these satisfying little stops on. And especially if we're going to try to um, persuade you into believing that the Nostromo explosions that's the end of the movie, so we're going to do a nice stop zoom. But then the other times we use it that we've talked about so much are on the space jockey, on these very, like, these creepy moments that are supposed to leave you feeling uneasy and not resolving the zoom is a nice subconscious way of making you feel uneasy. Yeah. So even unlike, in almost a more complex way than Kubrick even used the zoom, Ridley Scott's using it. It's like a deeper bit of film grammar here. I agree. Yeah. So I think it's it's a good subject to get on um, at the end of the movie here is that we get our last Zoom. We're going to get these resolved Zooms because I think we really Scott's finally saying, all right. Movie's over. <laughs> movie's over. The, the jig is up. I'm not going to fool you with these Zooms anymore. Now I'm telling you that the movie's over. Of course, the music maybe gives us a hint at a little different idea, but you had something more to say about that. Well, I was going to also throw it to one of our uh, listeners who wrote something in about this pause that happens within this uh, Howard Hansen piece that's being used. And if you want to read what they had to say and who sure. and who they were, and then we can talk about that. All right. So we received an email from listener John Griffin. He did not tell us where he was from, but uh, I will read some of the email. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, he kind of disagreed with in the last minute. We talked about how much we enjoyed the Howard Hansen score and whether it came in abruptly or not. Here he says, I agree with the two of you and West Anthony that chopping up and replacing parts of Garrett Jerry Goldsmith's music in the film is a travesty. He says, I think the worst example of rejecting Goldsmith's score is the use of Howard Hansen's romantic symphony at the end of the film. As a composer and music musician myself, I am familiar with his work. So for me, hearing it as background music is distracting. The piece is good on its own, but it feels wrong in the context of a horror film like this. It is simply too sentimental and sweet to work as underscore for Ripley shooting the nightmarish alien creature out of the airlock. He also, he wraps up by saying, in an interview with Ridley Scott on the Alien Anthology Blu-ray box set, he says that he and Terry Rawlings really liked the pause in the music 
that plays over the shot of Ripley in hypersleep right before going to the end credits. While it's certainly fairly effective in that context, that is not a good enough reason to throw out Goldsmith's score in my opinion, that being John Griffin's opinion. Thankfully, the complete original score is still available to listen to any time. The one thing I'll say about that pause is I love the fact that there's this minor chord that's struck before that pause happens because for me, watching the movie, I feel like, oh no, it's not over that there's going to be something else because it's not all sweetness and light and happiness, you know? And then there's this pause and then it kind of takes off in uh, a more romantic kind of major mm-hmm. way and it doesn't feel so menacing, but I don't know that one, that one note before the pause uh, is not necessarily a comforting sound. No, I, I totally agree. I actually think that this could be perceived as another example of them misguiding us for a moment. Like, we get this romantic music. Oh, it's a victory. It's time to relax. Ripley is calm. She's going to go to bed. We're play this romantic theme. And then in the middle of this romantic theme does come this minor chord. And I agree. I've always felt this way. I've always felt really good at this moment, honestly, because I think, oh, it's kind of exciting that that chord comes in. And I feel like mm, they're just kind of hinting at it's almost like a tease because clearly nothing else happens. We go right into the credits. But it's almost a tease to the audience of like, uh, you're just going to have this tiny little sense in your gut that maybe that everything's not going to be okay. It's in the cat. It's or that it's in the cat or however it's it was perceived of at the time. Right. So uh, I, lo- I love that too. I think it's fair to point out that surely Jerry Goldsmith could have done this had they just asked him to do it. I mean, clearly right. he could have created a score. Now, I don't know. Maybe it was because of the strife that was caused by some of the de- other decisions or the process in general. That that just wasn't an option anymore at that point, or that they were like, screw Jerry Goldsmith, we're just going to do whatever we want. I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to speculate exactly what happened, but they chose to use this, and I think it's a brilliant piece of music to use here. And it is with Hanson's music that the credits begin, and the three names that end this minute, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's basically the producer, uh, cinematographer, and the editor. And so that's not a bad place to start if we're going to talk a little bit about some of the people whose names show up in these credits. And I I would also just add that, especially for some of the principals like Ivor Powell and I think Terry Rawlings and for sure Michael Seymour, there are some interviews with them that are posted on our website, right, in the found objects category. I think there's some pretty thorough things that were done by Cinefantastique, and we've got a reprint Mm, of that up. Uh, and so I encourage you, if you haven't gone to the website and looked at some of those extra things, there, there's a little more interesting reading that can be found there talking about some of these people. But if you were going to begin with Ivor Powell, one of the things that's interesting is how his career kind of spanned a lot of um, late 20th century British popular culture because mm-hmm. he worked as a publicist on 2001 uh, and then um, worked as an assistant director on a couple of Carry On movies. Isn't so he? What, isn't he actually in two thousand and one as well? But not a major part or anything. I think he's one of the at the. Uh, yes, yeah. according to IMDb, I'm just looking it up that he is uncredited as Kaminsky in two thousand and one. Okay, and Kaminsky was one of the astronauts. So okay. they have shots of the. Remember, there are shots of the mm-hmm. astronauts in in cryo. Oh, I see. Okay, and I was I misunderstanding where he was. But I you're think talking he's about... one of those guys that gets whacked by Hal. One of yeah. <laughs> but he, obviously, he hooked up with um, Ridley Scott in the seventies and worked with him on The Duelists and on Alien and on Blade Runner. And there's a long interview with him in Cinefantastique that that's pretty interesting. And I don't know how you handle all of these credits beyond just a, the tip of the hat here and there because we'd be here 
for well, hours and obviously, hours. Obviously, Ivor Powell had was instrumental in the beginning of Ridley Scott's career. Like he was an associate producer on all of my favorite Ridley Scott films, which would be his first three films. I mean, it's hard not to say he's a common denominator in, in the success of those films in some way. Uh, I think he had some connections. I think he connected really Scott even earlier in his career with some people that turned out to, to work with really Scott a lot because in the commercial days as well. So, well, obviously we, ju- we were just talking about Terry Rawlings a little bit. Um, and, and to be honest, when I think of Terry Rawlings, you know, I, I watched the film, I think it's an impeccably edited film. It's hard not to first think of him in this controversial context of being the one that brought the temp tracks that then, <laughs> that's really what I think about when I think of Terry Rawlings. Great editor. I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but that sure is the first thing that comes to mind because it seems to be the hot story out of Alien, you know, the controversy with the score. And he was the one that, you know, he was somewhat complicit in the um, exchange, you know, or in the replacement of some of Jerry Goldsmith's score. But, man, you can't take anything away from his talents. I mean, this movie is, like I said, impeccably edited. Do you know he edited The Sentinel? No. Do you know The Sentinel? No. Oh, my God. So it's the sleaziest Michael Winter movie. And that's saying a lot. because Michael bag. Michael Winter made really (laughs) sleazy movies. But it's the one with Christina Raines. It's a horror film, and it takes place in this um, creepy old house where at the top floor is this nun who's like the guardian to the entrance to hell. It has (laughs) all of these really gross people living in the building uh, played by – I think Burgess Meredith is in there, and I think that – Mrs. Griswold from the first uh, National Lampoon's Vacation movie. Beverly D'Angelo. Beverly D'Angelo is in there. Yeah, she's like this psychotic lesbian. And <laughs> and they got Dick Smith to do all the special effects. Oh, really? So there's like some nasty eye gouging stuff and oh, just God. crazy, disgusting Dick Smith effects and all edited very nicely by yeah. Mr. Terry Rawlings. You recommend this film? Oh, you, you know, Sure. Okay. Why not? If, you, like, if your sleaze factor, do you is want high to see enough. a horror movie by Michael Winter? If the answer know, is man. yes, then you want to see this. If the answer is no, then you don't. I guess I'd probably have been more excited to see it about ten years ago. I saw I it when I was a kid. I really? saw it when I probably shouldn't have seen it. I was like thirteen or fourteen. Oh, okay, <laughs> just when I was starting to able to go. You mean your parents movie. didn't tell you you can't see any Michael Winter films? No, they didn't. Th- no, because oh, I saw Deathwish when it first came out, so oh I was God. already on the ride, man. Oh, what you must have thought of Jeff Goldblum. Oh, I know. I didn't. Even, it's so funny because then when I finally saw it again and realized it was Jeff Goldblum <laughs> as one of the rapists, I was like, "Oh my god!" Oh, that movie is. It's, it has its moments, but it yeah, does. but yeah, but it's but, rough, my, though. but anyway, Terry Rollins edited the Sentinel and Watership Down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Chariots of Fire. Oh yeah, he's and Blade he, Runner. And I mean, Blade and he worked with Ridley, Ridley Scott on six, six or seven films, several, several movies. He did Goldeneye too. So yeah. you know, that's. I always think of him first and foremost, honestly, as the editor of Blade Runner. For some reason, his name sticks out in the that opening credit, you know, because the Blade Runner credit sequence is so like, yeah. wonderfully mesmerizing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for some reason, his name has always stuck out to me. And I think he's ta- he has a lot of interview footage in that massive documentary uh, as well. But, um, I don't know what to say about Derek Van Lint. I feel like we discussed him at length with back when Todd Norris was on the show. I feel like he's almost an evasive subject when they talk about the movie. I don't think, right? Am I wrong about that? I don't feel like Derek Van Lent gives gets a lot of love. Yeah. Mainly, I think, because there's that assumption or maybe there's some truth to really Scott kind of being the DP of the movie. Yeah. So I think that uh, we'll give him some love. I'm sure he worked really hard on this movie. I'm sure he deserves more credit than he gets. 
And he oh, went on to do some, uh, he, he went on really to direct, but yeah. he also did some camera work on things like X-Men and 2000 uh, miniature photography and things like that. Yeah. You know, he shot Dragon Slayer. Yeah. That's a pretty cool looking movie. Dragon Slayer, one of the terrifying moments of my childhood. What did that movie come out? 81? 80. 80. Yeah. So in 81 was when I first got cable, uh, or at least my neighbor did. And I believe, I'm just remembering this totally through my hazy like childhood memory, that there's a scene where a guy is hiding behind a tree and a sword comes through the tree and stabs him through the heart. And I'd never seen such a thing in my <laughs> life. And it sounds so tame now. Yeah. But at the time, it was absolutely terrifying to me. But that's all I can remember. But the dragon, dragon is Slayer. so good. It The dragon is amazing. It was that Phil Tippett and they used the go motion which is, yeah. I think, what they used on the Tauntauns. And the Tauntauns and the Adats and yeah. Empire, yeah. And the dragon's really cool. Tip it. So definitely, if you want to see some uh, pre-Game of Thrones dragons that are pretty effective, pre-Lord yeah. of the Rings dragons that are effective, uh, I think that that's the movie to go to. Hey, who was the lead in Dragon Slayer? Wasn't it Peter McNichol? Yeah. From okay, Shows? I have seen, now that I think about it, now I have seen Peter or, uh, Dragon Slayer fairly recently because I thought he's the Ally McBeal guy, right? That I don't know. I think he is. Or I think he's he was in Ghostbusters yes, 2. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. yeah. I have seen that fairly recently now that I think about it, but I don't now I don't remember if that scene I'm remembering from childhood was there when I was just like, maybe it anyway. Was, maybe it was in, I don't know. I don't remember this that This is scene. tangential week. The tangent well, that's week what you do because we're going to be talking about people who worked on this movie and part of what we'll be talking about is what other movies they were working on. That's just kind of the way it's going to go. Oh, yeah. that's. I, I'm actually really looking forward to tomorrow because we're going to get to talk about so many other movies besides Alien. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should just get on with it. Well, guys. Tomorrow will be the last minute for the Alien Minute podcast, which this, is pretty amazing. We've been doing this for a while. Months. I think months. we started it almost six months ago doing yep. this. Yep. And here we are. We're going we're gonna to sign off for Minute 114 right now and move into the in credits extravaganza episode for friday the so, big finish the big finish so okay well you can find us at alienminute.com or follow us on twitter at alien minute pod or on instagram at alien minute podcast and uh, that's all i'm going to say for the end of this episode except r.i.p principal photography of the film and I'll see you tomorrow for the rest of the credits <laughs>